Hello, Regeneration. We are in our last study in the uh, book of Joel here. And uh, it's been pretty tough uh, things to hear from this prophet. He, he doesn't pull back any of his punches, but um, in a, accompanying uh, these warnings that he's given us are some really, really wonderful promises. Promises like Joel chapter 2, verses 25-26. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. A beautiful wondrous promise of restoration, an amazing promise of Joel, chapter 2, verse 32, is, is found there, another wonderful promise, which Peter quoted on his message during the uh, Pentecost, found in Acts chapter 2, and here's verse 32, this beautiful promise, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we have this promise of restoration. We have this promise of salvation. And then it brings us to this really important question of why. We can ask the who, what, when, where, and hows, which are very important, but, but the why. The why gives us insight into God's heart and who God is. And we get a glimpse of this from Joel chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. That the Lord is jealous, which when we think about it tends to have a negative connotation for us. To so, in order to shine a little light on that word, I think we need to also accompany it with some other synonyms. Synonyms such as God is passionate for his land, his children, his name. In Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 25, we read, I will be jealous for my holy name. You know, how would you feel? How would you think about God if his land, children, name, glory were to be terribly dishonored and he did nothing about it at all? And you can just plug yourself into this situation where your land, your, your property, your home, your belongings, what was rightfully yours, what is rightfully yours, and yours alone gets vandalized or stolen, damaged, what, what would you do about it if people were to destroy what was rightfully yours? Or your children, what would you, you do if people hurt them, abused them, enslaved, killed, kidnapped them? Who you are as a person. What if they slandered you before the world and attempted to ruin your character so that your reputation moving into the future would be ruined, not just for you, but for all those associated with you? What would you think of the person who just watches and does nothing about the people, the things, the name, whatever, you plug it in there, all those things that they love, it just gets ruined, it gets destroyed, what would you do? And so you see, this is not our God. Our God acts when His land, His children, His name, His glory, all the things He's zealous about get destroyed. And it might not be right away, but He doesn't just 
stand by and let things happen indefinitely. It's why Jesus was sent to die on the cross and to raise from the grave. God is passionate to save and bless his people. Take a look at Psalm 119, verse 139, and it reads, My zeal consumes me. And Jesus' zeal did consume him as evidenced on the cross. Jesus is zealous to save us. You can use that as a synonym to jealous, to protect us. And, and anyone who comes against his will will find that God is jealous for his people and his name. They might not realize that right away. But we're told five different times in the book of Joel that the day of the Lord is near. This phrase, the day of the Lord, is one that Joel knows very well. Joel chapter 1, verse 15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Joel chapter 2, verse 1, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. Joel chapter 2, verse 11, The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. Who can execute his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Joel chapter 2, verse 31. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And we'll be looking at this last one here in Joel chapter 3 a little more closely today. Joel chapter 3, verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Decision, And so I hope you can get this sense, this sense from Joel, that we need to get right with God. And it's not just about you. Yes, you need to make a decision about Jesus Christ and your relationship with our Lord and Savior. There's also a decision made about you. So it's not just a decision that you're making, but there's one made about you and many others like you. Look at verse 14 more closely. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And so you read multitudes, multitudes. It's not just about your decision about God. It's also about God's decision about you, about us. And this is what chapter 3 is about. That we, the multitude, will be in this valley of decision. Where God decides. And we're all going to be there. Again, very, very challenging news from Joel who doesn't hold back punches. It's, it's truth. It's, it's gospel truth. That God will decide in the valley of decision where we stand with him, and this is an inevitable event. It's coming. Whether you want it to or not, it is coming. It is just like death. It is coming. Jesus speaks of this over and over again, whether you look at his parables or his stories when he's comparing sheeps and goats or wheats and tares, wheats and chaff, good fish, bad fish. You can read it all for yourself in the Gospel of Matthew. And here, Joel is blowing the trumpet. He's sounding the alarm to wake us up, to get right with God. And in chapter 3, 
Joel is pointing out four things that people need to know about the judgment of God. And I find this to be just a very, very generous gift. To be told, told the future, so that we can make good and right decisions to get to a good destination. He tells us, he lays it out for us. God isn't expecting us to just walk blindly into our future. He's already told us what is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. So that we're given an opportunity to get right with God. It's it's so kind. It's very generous. It is merciful. It is gracious. It is loving of God to give us the future, isn't it? To tell us. And so now that we know it, what are we going to do with it knowing what it is? Well, Joel shares with us these four characteristics about judgment. And so here's the first characteristic. It's in verses 1 through 3. And it's the basis for God's judgment. On what basis is God going to judge my life, your life? Verses 1 through 3. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. The basis of God's judgment is based on how one responds to the family of God, verse 2, and then how one responds to children, Verse 3. So first let's look at how one responds to the family of God in verse 2. I will enter into judgment with them there. On behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. Because. So essentially. How one responds to the family of God. The, the people who profess the name of Jesus Christ. Now, now why is this? Because how one responds to God's children is how they'll respond to God, their Father. It's how one will respond to the family of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the name of Jesus Christ, which God is jealous of. He's jealous of His name. Look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 40. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. So how one responds to a Christian is an indication to how one's heart responds to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Also, how one responds to children is another indication to how one's heart responds to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. And have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and drunk it. Joel is writing about how people have prioritized their pleasures before children. And how that act is in very opposition to God. And this isn't something that loving parents, passionate parents, jealous parents, zealous parents do with their children. But this isn't just talking about our own children. 
an indication of how one stands before the judgment of God is based on our attitude toward children, defenseless ones, weak ones. When a person or persons prioritize their pleasures before the life of children, then that individual or that community of people is already under God's judgment. There are so many people who have placed pleasure before the lives of children. And God is jealous for those defenseless and weak children. How are we being like Christ in our attitude toward children? I'm so proud of so many of you at our church. Quite a few of you are foster parents, and that is just simply amazing. I also find it uncanny that Stephanie just announced that we are in need of people helping in student ministries and we're at these verses and how God works these things out. It's interesting. But those of you who are part of Foster the Bay in that support network or part of fostering children or are already going through the adoption process or already adopted those once defenseless children. And many of you are parents already, yet you're still involved in the lives of, of children who are in need of your jealousy. Some of you sit on boards serving children, or you work in organizations that serve children. You volunteer your time. You give financially. Pray for all these different organizations that we partner with that love children in our community. Partnerships with Tribe and Missio Day, New Day for Children, Foster the Bay, the Amani Choir, Harbor House Support Circle, OLC, and please forgive me if I've missed any. But you see how that's a good indicator of where one stands with the Lord. And I'm glad our church stands in this way. It's so encouraging to see so many of you extending mercy, extending goodness to children. It is very holy. It reveals what's in our hearts as it is in God's heart. Matthew chapter 19 verse 14, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. You see, our personal pleasures are not to be prioritized before children. And the pleasure of God is to be paramount and God sees the needs of children to be prioritized before our pleasures and if you need help with this, I encourage you to contact us so that we can surround you with prayer and support you and see what we can do to help you. We are to prioritize the love of God's people, and we are to prioritize the love of children. And so when we're looking at God's people, our missionaries that we support as an example, or Voice of the Martyrs, or churches, pastors that we support, it brings Pleasure to God to extend love to those in the family of God and to also extend love to children. This is a, a sign, an indicator of our own relationship to God. So that's the first. Here's the second characteristic, the nature of God's judgment. So we looked at the basis for God's judgment and now we're going to look at the nature of God's judgment in, in verses 4 through 8. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? 
Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my treasures, rich treasures, into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken." This is speaking of God's judgment corresponding, matching up to the sin. So look at verse 6. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Now jump to verse 8. God says, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away. And so you see the judgment of God upon sin justly matches the nature of sin against God. So for example, there are a bunch of people who hate the teachings of Joel, who hate the teachings of Jesus, John, Paul. Whenever sin is brought up, whenever judgment is brought up, and people hate hearing about Christian teachings regarding judgment against sin. They want us to focus on other topics that are more palatable to them. But it would be completely disingenuous to leave out teachings of judgment against sin because it's written about so much in the Bible. But people want their freedom to be and do as they please, which you can. You have the freedom to do that. It, it is just that there are consequences to living the way you want to live. And this is what the Bible is honestly forewarning people about. That God is graciously giving us the future. He's laying that out for us. And yet we are at complete liberty to do as we please during this time. But that very liberty to rebel is matched with the judgment of God. That our rebellion, which we have free will to participate in, is matched to God's judgment. People think they are completely free to do as they please without consequence. You can do whatever you please, but there are corresponding costs to the decisions. God does not condone or contend with our sin. He will give us our freedom to sin. But then there are these associated detriments to the sin. Look at Romans chapter 1. When God mentions three times that he gave them up. Why? Romans chapter 1 verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And then here are the three times where God gave them up. Chapter 1 verse 24, Romans. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Then to verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. You're free. You are free to continue down the path you want to continue down. And God let these people do that. God gave them up. See, God doesn't always intercede. 
God doesn't always immediately give us his wrath. God's judgment is appropriate. It matches the sin eventually. Maybe not right away. In the meantime, God gave them up. Now don't mistake God's patience, his long-suffering, his grace, his mercy for the absence of judgment. Because we reap what we sow. And the day of the Lord is coming. Joel has told us that five different times. We're in this huge political climate where there are politicians and policymakers and lawyers and judges. And with COVID, there are doctors and psychologists and sociologists and all these different people who are debating back and forth what is best for people. But the word of the Lord tells us not to put pleasures before children. And the Lord tells us to prioritize the family of God, to listen to those people. And so I've been doing a fair amount of marriage counseling as of late. And sometimes there are issues that come up about separation or divorce and as for me, I personally think, and I think that the scriptures would back me up on this, that marriage issues are to be worked out so that the children are put before your pleasures. We reap what we sow. Decisions we make today affect not only my tomorrow, but our tomorrows, your children's tomorrows. Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul knew what the prophet Joel wrote. He understood Joel chapter 3. And so a question. Is the judgment of God already working in your life? In that, are you one of those God gave them up people. Have you already been given over to whatever sin you've been practicing? Has God left you to your own hardened heart? Because you can have whatever you want. There are just associated costs with it. And so you have to ask, whose will are you accomplishing? Is it your own will or is that of the Lord's will, and it's not just an individual because it also pertains to a community where God will give an entire multitude over to their sin. And so we see that God's judgment corresponds to the sin. And so here's the third characteristic. It's, it's the surrender in God's judgment, verses 9 through 16. Proclaim this among the nations, 
Consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and, and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. This section is speaking of submitting to God's judgment. And so you can picture Joel's poetry in this section of scripture. He's not writing about a literal geography. He's giving us a picture of what it's like. The, the meaning of the valley of Jehoshaphat in verse 12 is the valley of Jehovah has judged. Or the valley of Jehovah's judgment. So you picture these verses that were just read. Where nations are assembling for war against God so that they can knock God off his throne so that they can conquer God and God sees all that's happening against him and he lets it happen he gives them their free will he's giving them their freedom he gives them liberty to war against him but what the people don't realize is that they're in a battlefield in that valley and so that picture is one of a wine press. Verse 13. And this is a place of judgment. This is the valley of decision, that wine press, judgment. That's what's being described here through verse 16. And so this wine press, this judgment, this picture, you can find another picture of this in Isaiah, Isaiah 63, starting in verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimsoned garments from Bozrah, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on earth. You get the picture of the wine press. You get the picture of the judgment. And then you can also find another picture, the picture that we read from verses 15 and 16 in Joel chapter 3. You can get that picture in Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17. 
When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? There are so many people who want to talk about something else, wondering why. Why would the church, why would regeneration continue to talk about sin and judgment? It's because we're told what's going to happen. And I would not be doing my ministry serving you as a pastor if I didn't forewarn you like Joel is forewarning us today. You know, if we, if we knew when the big one, the big one was going to hit the Bay Area, don't we have a responsibility to tell the people? To save lives? You see, the day of the Lord is coming. And all of us who take the authority of the scriptures seriously know that it is coming. Are we pretending that it's not? See, we tell people the good news of Jesus Christ because we save lives. That's what we do. And so here's the fourth characteristic, the last characteristic. These glorious end results of God's judgment, verses 17 through 21. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. And we already went through that with Obadiah before Joel. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. So here is Joel continuing to paint this picture for us. And as we read from Joel chapter 1 up to this point, we, we need to think back to the devastation of those locusts and then how God delivered his people from that plague. And it reads, People will know that I am the Lord your God because of these glorious things he has done. Verse 17. At the end of life, what matters? What matters? And for the child of God, what matters is that we dwell with him. That we are present in his glory. That we are saved in order to be truly free. No longer in bondage to sin. No longer enslaved to seeking our own pleasures. Not chained to my selfish will. But realizing that God's will sets me free. 
we're told that there's a valley of decision. And much of what will happen, it's not if, it's when, will happen. Much of what will happen in the valley of decision in the future is directly tied to the decisions that we make right now. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We must share with people how they are to be saved. And we baptize them. It's been wonderful. We've had a half dozen baptisms in the last month. It's been wonderful. And direct people to come before our crucified and risen Savior Jesus Christ. To call upon his name and to be saved before the day of the Lord. Where all will appear for his judgment in the valley of decision if you're hearing this, you know the future. You know this. Do the people around you, the people that you love, the people that you're closest to, do they know? Have you already decided today what your future will look like? So that you can live the rest of your days assured, assured in Jesus Christ, because He has forgiven you of your sins if you by faith confess those sins to Him and ask for that forgiveness. And if you pray in faith to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life according to His will, He will grant that to you. You decide today for what's happening tomorrow. And we won't be perfect. Far from it. We always need the Lord. But even though we're far from perfect, we can be confident like Paul when he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I'm going to end with these verses, verses 7 and 8. And I hope that it is something that I can go out proclaiming myself. And it's Paul, and he writes this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let us pray. Lord Jesus how gracious you are, how merciful, long-suffering, patient. You do not wish that any should perish, but all that would come to you. And so, Lord, I pray that this message supernaturally touches the lives of people, not because of words that have been said, but because your spirit is dynamic and working and is going throughout the world saving people. Lord, we thank you for those that have taken that step of faith and have been baptized these past uh, couple of months, that their lives have been transformed and changed. We pray, Lord, that more of that happens. 
And even though at a time where we're not meeting together physically, you're working in incredible ways. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your communion elements, let's uh, take that out and have communion together. First, the bread, which we will break together. Symbolizing the broken body of Christ. Jesus Christ sacrificing himself to cover our sins. He who was sinless covering the sins of all who are sinful. So may we remember the Lord Jesus' sacrifice. May we remember the promise that he is returning and that Joel has forewarned us about already sounding the alarm, blowing the trumpet. Let us take this in Jesus' name. The Lord is jealous of his name. It was very costly. The fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us. Extremely costly, costing him his life, costing God his only begotten son. And we take this sacrament in remembrance of what Jesus Christ has done for us to imitate him and to remember that that valley of decision is coming. It is near. We take this in remembrance of Christ. Lord Jesus, simple elements yet so full of meaning. We ask God for your church to be the church, for your spirit to fill each member of our church and the churches who proclaim who you are. May we do good while we are here, not ignoring those physical locusts, but prioritizing, dealing with our own hearts, our own spiritual health. And yet, Lord, you, you do direct us to do good. But may we be led by the banner of the cross and your blood. In Jesus' name, amen.